Welcome to Mission Now, a series of the Mission Matters podcast here at St. Louis University. Mission Now is a monthly conversation featuring Father David Sawalski, the Vice President of Mission, and Dr. Amber Johnson, the Interim Vice President of the Division of Diversity and Innovative Community Engagement. Each month, these two engage lively dialogue around current campus events, their relevance and impact from the perspective of their respective offices, and the ways in which those events invite all of us in the SLU community to live the mission here and now. I am Virginia Herbers, the Director of Mission Formation, and I am pleased to bring you this special series from the Office of Mission and Identity. We are back uh, with a new month and a new episode of Mission Now. So we welcome back Father David Sawalski and Dr. Amber Johnson. And today we are talking about some of the issues at SLU where we need to confront our past in order to shape our future. So welcome back to the two of you and take it away. Wonderful, thank you so much. Where to start? Where to start? Well, after some conversation, we decided that we would talk about issues surrounding the reality of St. Louis University as a slave-owning institution in the 19th century. Start with that there. Obviously, it has huge impacts in our conversation today when we talk about equity and justice and where the African-American community is and where it could be or could it have been someplace else without this experience. There's the complicity of the church itself that goes beyond 1865. I personally have a lot of interest in looking at SLU after slavery. So talking about the Jim Crow era, you know, we tend to focus upon Father Heithouse's homily that was delivered at a student mass in 1944. But there was a lot that came before then that uh, it's got a lot of shadow in it, as well as some bright spots. So when Amber and I were talking, we thought, well, this is something that's out there and something that we should be thinking about and how do we help people understand it and not just at SLU but maybe even for younger people when they're in high school and that sort of thing so and I I think that this is a moment for us to really come to grips with how we understand and what we are understanding and the importance of having a shared meaning around that history I think because of how we've taught the history of slavery in the United States in K through 12 education, but also just in in our households. The way we've used language to dismiss the atrocities, to dismiss the implications, to dismiss the way it completely, not just transformed entire cultures of people, but entire nations. This nation, the nations within which those folks were gone and taken from. And so I, I think that if we don't have a shared meaning of that history, the who's, the what's, the how's. It is very difficult to justify why we put so much effort into reparations, into reconciliation, into truth telling. Because if you don't understand those atrocities and everything you know is from a textbook where we use language like migrant workers or passive language, you know, slaves were brought. No, slaves weren't brought here. People kidnap doctors and healthcare professionals and healers and teachers. People kidnap folks who were living and thriving and and civically engaged in their communities and then enslaved them. 
And I think that there's also a really beautiful moment to think through that middle passage. But I often wonder in my own black imagination, did some of those people think about perhaps messages or ideas they got from some divine energy that said, we are gonna send you on a mission that is going to be absolute hell. Many of the people you know will die. They will not make it. Will you be able to withstand this journey and create something new? And in that moment, I am thankful that some of my ancestors survived the Middle Passage because Black America, as we know, would not exist if they didn't. I exist because they survived. And so I think oftentimes, you know, we dismiss and downplay the atrocities, but we also forget to talk about some of us are here because of that survival. Um, and so I think there's so much room for nuance and so much room to, to really dig into this conversation. So that's why when we started, I said, you know, where to start? Because there, there's so many things to start with. Yeah, and I think as the historian in the room, actually my area is 19th century U.S. history. My dissertation was on the failure to introduce slavery into the Kansas territory before the Civil War. So there's that academic side of it that's of interest to me as well as the family side of it too. I mean, my mom's side of the family is from South Carolina and Georgia. You know, there's quite a bit of history that mom doesn't want to know about, frankly, because she's pretty much convinced that that's not anything she's going to be proud of or any, any member of the family would be proud of. But how did SLU get involved with slavery? And I'm going to just do this briefly. So in 1823, the then bishop of this area is Berg is in charge of this huge territory that has Catholics in it, although not an enormous number. And he's got no priests and no religious women. And he first got to the Vincentians who ended up down in Perryville, Missouri, and they were from Italy. And then Mother Duchenne and the religious of the Sacred Heart who ended up in St. Charles. And then the Jesuits were number three. Now, what his experience was is that the Vincentians from Italy had basically no practical skills whatsoever and almost all died. They didn't know how to build anything. They didn't know how to grow anything. The religious of the Sacred Heart tended to be aristocratic daughters who had no real practical skills either. And so that became a problem as well for them. And so when he found out that there were these Jesuits available out in Maryland, he insisted as part of the agreement between the then Maryland province and the diocese that the Jesuits had to be accompanied by slaves. And most of those Jesuits were from Belgium, had no experience of slavery, and also were coming from what we would think of as middle-class backgrounds. They weren't farmers and that sort of thing. And so the Maryland province sent six slaves with these Jesuits to come to St. Louis to Florissant. They were three couples, and they did all of the practical things as they were going down the Ohio and as they were walking across southern Illinois to get to St. Louis. Then later, more slaves were requested from Maryland, and they came out here too. So there was, from the very beginning of the Jesuits in St. Louis, they were always accompanied by enslaved persons and were able to take advantage of their skills and talents so that they could create this Jesuit life and support these Jesuit institutions, of which the first one was an Indian school that didn't work and then became the Jesuits at the St. Louis College, then St. Louis University. That slave ownership continued until the end of the war, 1865. And the number could be as many as 60 persons. This also was a slave state. And so the use of 
enslaved labor in order to build or to do practical things. Slave owners would rent the labor of their enslaved people. And in a society that's just completely entangled with the institution of slavery. So even if you were adamantly opposed to slavery, as were most of the German immigrants, for example, you couldn't escape it. You'd go down to the old courthouse where they actually did slave auctions on the steps. There was no way you could not see this in play. And that, of course, was going to be true all the way through to the end of the Civil War as well. So it's something. And, and one of the huge questions I have is, especially for the Jesuits, I mean, as I said, we're from Belgium, didn't have any experience of slavery before they came to the United States. What is it that made it so easy for them to just adopt that model, to become active participants in that? What didn't stop them from saying things like, it's wrong? <laughs> It's immoral. You cannot take self-determination from another person. But they didn't ask those questions. They just kind of slipped into the system and kept right on going. And isn't that the real question for us now? What is it that prompts us to step up and say no more? So that part of history is right here into the present. Yeah. And the, the ways in which those atrocities were lived in everyday experience are still experienced. This is a really interesting state to live in because there are so many people who see it as a part of this like neutral territory. It's not the South, but it's not the Northeast. And we're just kind of absolved of the consequences of that conflict. And it's like, this was a slave owning state. It is very much a part of that Southern history. And until we can reckon with that, right? Until we can come to grips with that, there will always be tension around talking about this history. But on top of that, right, those atrocities still exist. We still see immediate and direct evidence of how slavery and then Jim Crow era really just disenfranchised black folks in this state and the ways in which those communities still suffer, whether it's divestment through tax abatements or white flight, whether it's redlining and GI bills and an inability to own a home, our education system being funded primarily by taxes, whatever it is, that evidence persists, right? So how many hospitals are on the north side of St. Louis City? How many pharmacies are on the north side of St. Louis City? How many grocery stores that you would recognize as a grocery store? are on the north side of St. Louis City, right? Pruitt Igo, all of these things are a direct result of this state's complicity and activity in terms of, of slavery and slave holdings. And, and so it's, it's hard to even have conversations with people about how do we shape our future if they refuse to even acknowledge what happened. So when you think about this massive debate around critical race theory, K through 12 education. First of all, here's a myth buster for anybody listening who has bought into these arguments. No one's teaching critical race theory in K through 12 education. That is a theory that is only taught in classrooms on college campuses where it's relevant. So you're not gonna go into biology class and get a history and critical, you know, a lesson in critical race theory. That's not going to happen, right? You're gonna get that in American studies and communication and social justice and African-American studies and women and gender studies. And it actually was developed first by law professors. It's meant to address the question of what is structurally present in the law that actively suppresses opportunity for people, particularly persons of color. Yep. We can point to the law over and over again. I mean, Jim Crow segregation, whites only this, and on and on and on. We know that law has been used 
in order to discriminate. Racial profiling, stop and frisk, like it's still used. It persists. And so, you know, when we think about these things and we think about this sort of war on critical race theory, you know, until we are really clear about what happened and we are honest about that, we cannot shape a different future. We are just going to continue to perpetuate the same things. And that's really what teaching American history with honesty means. And I know that there are people who are frightened by that because like you said, your mother likely would feel real uncomfortable having to reconcile and, and hear the truth about these things. But how lucky are we to have the privilege to shun away from truth and not have to experience it for what it is right now? So as much as we say, well, we don't want our children to be exposed to these horrible things, they happen to kids that age and they're still happening. And so we don't have the privilege to say we don't want to learn things that make us uncomfortable because people are uncomfortable because of their race, because of things that have nothing to do with their merit or, or the goodness of their heart. Simply just by their genetic disposition, they are uncomfortable. I am uncomfortable. Every day that I let my children walk out the door, I am terrified for their lives. So I understand if you don't want to be uncomfortable, but guess what? Some of us don't have that option. And until we reckon with what has happened, and we go through the truth and reconciliation process, we really think about reparative justice, people will continue to be uncomfortable. So either you can sit in your discomfort now and learn and let's shape a different future, or we can keep making the same mistake and just be uncomfortable forever. Well, from my perspective, I think the telling the historical truth is really essential. And the way history can be manipulated can be demonstrated time and time again. And I think from, again, from my perspective, with the romantic myth of the pre-war South, for example, or the generations of historians that romanticized slavery and slaveholding, and then demonized uh, the Union generals who defeated them. Real clear, when you said it is essential to tell that history, the history has to be told from those who were most impacted by it. It needs to be told by the folks who were enslaved and their descendants. Because then and only then do we get the whole truth. It's also really imperative that we look at how whiteness was rhetorically constructed during this period as well as a strategic rhetoric to create division between people of color and, and people who were not at some point perceived white, right? Your Irish folks, your Polish folks, your Greek folks, your Italian folks. They became white in order to create a, a critical mass. Again, being honest about this, it also means telling their stories because their stories weren't just happy either. Their stories weren't great. And all these stories have to be told. And I think once we tell those stories, you can see a real clear need, but also it's imperative that rural working class folks come together. You know, I taught in our prison program my first year at SLU. So I would drive to, to Bon Terre every Tuesday. I taught the people who worked in the prison, and then Tim Huffman taught the people who were incarcerated. Almost all of his students were black and brown. Almost all of my students were white. But I learned a really important lesson while I was there, because in my head, everything was black and white. And what I learned is their story sounded a hell of a lot like mine. Mm -hmm. And when you grow up poor, when you grow up in a system that wasn't designed for you to thrive, you suffer. And their suffering was so, so similar to the suffering that I know. And it really made me think how powerful 
could the rural and working class folks of this nation be if we came together over that shared experience versus dividing ourselves over our racialized experiences? It's what you started with on the very first podcast. We sure. start in our common ground instead of starting with where we're going head to head. The result's going to be qualitatively different. But if we can't get past the strategic racial divides, we'd be unstoppable. It is true that a lot of the frustration, if not anger, that's being expressed in the country today is being expressed from people who believe they've been promised something that they haven't gotten and then don't have access to power to pull the levers to make things change. And that seems to be certainly the case in rural America. And it certainly seems to be the case in poor America. And we do have impediments, roadblocks, that if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you're not going to get A, B, and C, right? So if you don't get an education or don't have access to a good education, then that's going to push you in one direction that's going to be very difficult to follow. As Amber pointed out, if your parents were not homeowners and you didn't grow up in a home, but were constantly on the move and and unstable and feared for whether or not you had enough food on the table. And so that's all your energy in life is going for just the basics that any of the three of us don't really have to think about at all. That's going to push you in that direction as well. And the fact that the systems are very difficult to breach. And this, again, talking a little bit about this from the previous podcast, that in order to force a change, you have to be skillful and talented and you have to have perseverance and patience. And all of those qualities are not the typical qualities that you see with somebody who is holding up a sign that says, I'm homeless on a median on King's Highway. All of their energy is going to that and not to these other things. When we took those resources away and those folks said, I need these things that you've promised me that I don't have. It's not just that we've taken these resources that we promised you, but we're also going to blame it on someone else so that you are perpetually mad and enraged at this group. If we see an immediate threat in affirmative action, right? All of these people of color and women are taking jobs away from qualified white people. That's not how this works. I want to return for a second to some of the semantics and vocabulary, because it seems that it's become somewhat fashionable to be able to use words like I'm an anti-racist or yes, I'm in support of critical race theory. And I'm not sure everyone who uses that vocabulary understands what they're saying. And maybe that's a little cynical, or maybe that's a little arrogant to say that, but are you seeing this kind of thing as well? Yes, you are absolutely correct. So it is absolutely trending. There are lots of terms that people are learning, and then they weaponize those terms against the very groups that they might claim to be trying to liberate, right? And so what we're seeing is people go in and take a training, they get the language, they say, I'm good, I'm woke. I'm an established social justice warrior. But the truth of the matter is this work requires transformation. It is not about learning the language. You have to transform yourself inside. That means that you have to acknowledge all the ways that your bias has shown up in spaces. You have to acknowledge all the ways that you've caused harm. And the truth of the matter is all of us have caused harm because for every person that exists, there is somebody who has less than them, whether it's rooted in social identity and systemic oppression or something else. There's always somebody who has less than you. And and as long as we are not being honest about the ways that we've caused harm, 
we're not going to learn how to prevent that harm in the future. And so for most people, the first step isn't learning the language. The first step is acknowledging how you've participated in these systems and stop doing it. My favorite word that students especially love to mess up is intersectionality. Intersectionality is about power. It's about how power overlaps due to different systems impacting people differently. So people aren't intersectional. Power is intersectional. And it's learning things like that makes us better to fight those systems of power. What I find really challenging is that I think for most people, it's just overwhelming. Oh, yes. It's so, so much. And the more you learn about it, it just becomes even more much, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I just want to look at people and, and be with people and say, let's just start slow. I'm not talking about minor things, but here's an example that's happening at Catholic U. They've had this picture of the Pieta in which the Blessed Virgin Mary is cradling a figure painted to look like George Floyd. And the thing has been stolen twice. And the comments about that is, is how dare you depict Jesus to look like George Floyd or depict Jesus to look like a black man. And, you know, people have asked me about this. And I said, if we're all created in the image and likeness of God, then how come George Floyd doesn't reflect God, right? There's one. Two, have you ever been to an Ethiopian church and seen their saints? Every culture, every Christian culture depicts its saints, its idea of the holy to reflect what they look like. I've seen in our, our collection at the art museum, for example, one of the largest sites for Christianity in Japan is Nagasaki. And all of their images all have Japanese features. And why would you expect something different unless it was imported from someplace else? Right. Which is oftentimes true when the Europeans built the churches, that's what they did. But it's just on some of these very fundamental levels that I say, if we can start there, then we can get up to some of these bigger issues that are getting bandied about and misinterpreted or weaponized in uh, social media and on-air media and that sort of thing. And for SLU, I think there's just some basic questions that eventually will have to be addressed. I mean, the main administrative building is named after Bishop de Berg. The other main administrative building is Father Verhagen, the first Jesuit president, who was one of the first of the Belgian Jesuits to come to St. Louis. And just kind of go from there. We don't call North Campus what it's supposed to be called anymore because it's named after a Confederate general. And once we accepted that gift from his daughter, which was a huge gift, then we moved the statue of Captain Lyons that was on the corner of West Pine and Grand, who defeated her grand, her father, I should say, in an episode of Lindell Grove, which is also part of our campus. Hmm. Right? When pro-Confederate sympathizers were organizing themselves so they could march on the Jefferson barracks and confiscate the weapons in the arsenal. But it just goes on and on. That million-dollar gift allowed the university to start purchasing property on the east side of Grand. And what was on the east side of Grand? Well, before urban renewal just demolished everything, was the largest concentration of poor African-Americans, mostly coming up from the south, living in substandard tenement housing without much in the way of opportunity. And so it was all announced to be blighted and then it was all demolished. And then the university had access to property it never had access before. Yeah, that is the kind of thing I think we should be talking about when we look at 
slew and look at where we are today and how we got there. And not from fear. These are realities. And in some cases, because we might learn about these realities and understand them more deeply, it may shape and should shape how we respond to the present challenges. You know, you, you brought up a really great point. People are terrified to mess up, terrified to do it wrong. And, mm. and I consistently tell people, if you want to make a difference, the first thing you have to do is exercise grace and compassion for yourself. You are going to mess up. You have a lot to learn, but you don't have to learn all of it. Jonathan Smith wrote this really beautiful theory, multiple cultural fluency, um, and we're adopting it in DICE. And basically what he says is no single person can understand everybody's social problems, but we can take inventory of what experiences are at our table, acknowledge what's not there, do our best to get it there, and then work as a team collaboratively. And so what that looks like is, no, you can't know everything about everyone's experience. But if you surround yourself with people who are different from you, you will have a team of folks that you can turn to, a team of folks that will help you and teach you, that you in turn will help and teach as well, because they might not know about your issues. And when we create diverse organizations based on these fluencies, these multiple cultural fluencies, our organizations are better equipped to handle these issues institutionally and systemically. And so, yes, you're going to mess up, but do your best to establish goodwill and be in community with people who are different so that together you make less mistakes. And then when you do make a mistake, forgive yourself and then keep it pushing, right? Don't dwell in the pocket of, woe is me, I, I screwed up, but dwell in that space of, I learned something from this and I know not to do this again. And you'd be surprised Oftentimes, the loudest ones in the room are the least knowledgeable about stuff. But for anyone listening who is loud, I don't want to say tailor what you're saying, but just know that we are listening. And when you say certain things like, you know, this picture of this depiction of George Floyd as Jesus shouldn't be in church, your racism is showing. Know that we see that, right? We call these dog whistle politics. We hear the message behind the message. And so as we go out and try to embark on these, these big charges to change slew or to change community, think about how you speak with people. Think about who you collaborate with because it shows, it always does. And we're, we're not stupid. You know, you've both used language talking about transformation and talking about the need to reckon. And I love that word and the need to be truthful about the stories and the histories. We haven't used the word yet, but there's an element of humility that mm. must be present when these conversations that are very difficult and very charged occur. Because yeah. without humility and without a mindset that says, you have a perspective that is just as valid, if not even more so based on your own experience. Therefore, I can be quiet and I can listen. Right. And I think that's right. And, you know, there's different ways of approaching these things. And I think perhaps the, the strongest examples that people could focus on would be Dr. King and Malcolm X. Dr. King coming from his background as a Baptist minister, and certainly before he started denouncing the Vietnam War and economic inequality, which really did turn off white people to his message. That notion of 
nonviolence and confrontation that was basically holding a mirror to the violence that was being perpetrated was a transformative thing. And then you get Malcolm X and others who are saying, no, it's too slow. These things have to be confronted. People need to see and they need to get out of the way sort of thing. And so each of those things can work in a very specific circumstance. But the reality is, is that whoever it's being directed to has to be willing to listen. And that, as you say, the humility to to, uh, drop the arrogance that you know all, you have all the answers. Yes. And that the way it is, is the way it must be for eternity. Just really doesn't make any sense. And if you just step back for a minute, you know, what makes the U.S. different from so many places, both good and bad ways, I suppose, is because generally speaking, the country is dynamic. It was liberated from aristocracy and emperors and all of that sort of thing. So they're just not these fixed systems that are meant to be forever. And it's because of that constant change, we should think up to ourselves that maybe changing things is pretty good for us. It's worked out pretty well for us. And more and more people are being given the opportunity to be a part of that change. It also requires a distinctive type of vulnerability. Being honest about how these things impact us, being honest about the discomfort, um, but also, you know, you you brought up Malcolm X and and Martin Luther King, and and there's a third party here, too, who went the respectable route and became politicians and became Mm -hmm. advocates. Yeah, the John Lewis's of the world. Exactly. It took them, too. And so... The, the, the militant folks might want to say, well, y'all are too slow and too soft. Do, my way works. And then the, the folks who are nonviolent might say, well, no, that we don't like that approach. My approach is what's going to work. And then the folks who went into politics say, well, no, you're both wrong. The truth of the matter is it took all three of these kinds of people because these systems are so complex and there's so much to dismantle. It takes folks working from the inside without, it takes folks working from the outside within, and it takes folks wrapped around the whole system. That vulnerability is the vulnerability of acknowledging, not just that I don't have all the answers, but I am not sufficient unto myself, that it takes a team, and that I have to collaborate with people who might not think about these things the same way, and who might approach these things very differently. You know, to go back to our last podcast, when we talk about these issues around pro-life and pro-choice and reproductive health, when I get down to that lowest common denominator, so I'm talking to students who are pro-choice and pro-life at the same table, and I ask them, what's the actual problem? And you know, they, abortion's the problem. I say, no, 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 no. Abortion is an answer to a problem that is a problem in and of itself. What's the actual problem? And eventually we get to unwanted pregnancy. And once we get there, I just ask them, are there ways to prevent unwanted pregnancies that we can come together and agree on? And they're like, yeah, we can. Yeah, I think so. And and so it it requires vulnerability in knowing that I don't have all the answers. I have to collaborate with people. And those people might approach this problem completely different from, from how I would. But when media tells us that these opposing camps are are in fact opposite and villains, It makes it really hard to reach across, reach around, reach through, reach behind, reach forward, because they've been demonized. But in reality, there are people who want to help. They just have different ideas about how to help. And if we could come together and attack these issues from that lowest common denominator, we could make magic. We really could. 
I really think that in addition to what, what you've said, Amber, that the more people can understand how larger, perhaps unseen forces are depriving us of our freedom of action, mm-hmm. then we're just going to be constantly reactive. And I don't operate with, here's a good theology term, a hermeneutic of suspicion. I, just, I mean, I'm not peeking behind the curtains to find out where the people are hiding to hurt me sort of thing. But part of this is, is that we have, it's incumbent upon us to kind of understand the water that we're swimming in and to see how things are happening. And we, we recognize that. We know that advertising, for example, is, is persuasive. It's meant to be persuasive and it's meant to manipulate you to, you know, desire something you didn't need or didn't know you needed sort of thing. So there's an example of that. We know what buttons can be pushed to get everybody to scream and yell at a football game, for example, with song licks they're going to use to rile up the crowd and all of that sort of business. So we know there's stuff out there. Sometimes we just have to name it and acknowledge it. And in some ways, it comes back to kind of our original theme here. We know slavery existed. We know it was an incredibly cruel system. We need to name that and then become more and more aware of how it was defended, how, how the indefensible was defended, how it endured and continues to endure in our society today so that we can come together with some sense of humility and to talk about these, these issues, whether it's slavery or racism or the difference between being pro-choice and being pro-life. You know, all of those, all of those things that, that are in play here. And if we know what, what the strategies were to preserve a system yeah. like slavery, strategies that came into play in order to preserve and promote segregation, for example, then our eyes are, and our minds are trained to see similar systems that are in play in our life, in our society today. It's a game changer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I really want us to pick this back up because today was really like a, today was a grounding conversation, right? And I really want us to, we have some amazing experts right here on SLU's campus. And we have some amazing partners and collaborators outside of SLU who research and study the history of slavery as it connects to Jesuits, to our institution, but also the descendants of those, those three couples that you mentioned, right? We must also say their names, but those three couples who, who arrived here with those Jesuits who founded this institution. We, we have access to the descendants, right? And so relying on their voices, their expertise, and their knowledge is going to be critical in continuing this conversation and reconciling with that truth and then repairing that harm and then preventing that future harm. So when we say shaping our future, we really mean transformation and not complacency or quieting something or pretending like it never happened. And I agree. And thinking about my last conversation with a group of descendants who are elderly, I mean, they're, they're getting up in age. And you know, I think there's a lot of fear that people are going to come in and demand radical changes, you know, sort of thing, maybe they have every right to. But really, one of my takeaways with that at that meeting, they just wanted acknowledgement that their ancestors had contributed to the university in a way that brought St. Louis University to its stature today. They may not have had control of their own labor, they may not have had the ability to make their own determinations about life. 
but their presence and their labor and other work that they did, even in, in support in personal ways, is as much of a legacy, as much of an endowment to the university as was the work of the Jesuit community for those generations as well. And I think that's important. The acknowledgement is important and, and a sense of invitation that all are welcome to this campus, including those who, because they were enslaved, did not have the opportunity for, for a diploma yeah. to be called uh, you know, alumni of the university. The acknowledgement for that moment, the apology for that moment, and then again, shaping the future. How do we repair that? That's what justice looks like. Just to kind of wrap this up, I've been playing a little bit with some of what you're describing. And tell me if this kind of captures it. We're talking about overcoming fear with a sense of community, realizing that we're all in this together. Community that triumphs over chaos transformation rather than territorialism, vulnerability rather than vanity, and listening over shouting. There's a lot to that, and I'm not sure one little podcast can catch it all, but what a great launch for this conversation. It is difficult. This is hard, hard stuff, but what you two have said over and over and over again is not doing the hard stuff doesn't make it go away. It actually yep. makes it harder in the long run. So we can do hard things and we must do these hard things. There you go. We'll pick this up next time. All right. Thank you both very, very much. Boom.